Back then the draft was on, so I knew that I would probably get drafted if I didn't volunteer. Welcome to Preserving Valor, a podcast dedicated to saving the personal stories of veterans. My name is Jay Vissers. This is the beginning of Air Force veteran Stanley Lubin's story. Stanley joined the Air Force in the beginning of 1958. The post-war baby boom was peaking and public school integration was being enforced by federal troops in Arkansas. Laika had been launched into space on Sputnik 2 and the space race was ignited. The House Un-American Activities Committee held Pete Seeger in contempt and Lennon and McCartney were just starting their friendship. Back in Michigan, Stanley was living a relatively quiet life. Parents were Marvin and May Lubin, Nellie May Lubin, and they were farmers, dairy farmers. We built 30 dairy cows, and so it was five o'clock every morning, all through high school. Uh, milk 30 cows, come get in the house by 7, 7.30, uh, had a quick breakfast, change your clothes, and, and off to school. And then right after high school, you jumped on the bus unless I drove. As soon as I had my license, I think I drove most of the time. But it was right back home because Dad was starting to milk cows at 3.30. Twice a day, seven days a week, no excuses. The Cold War draft was active at the time, and like many young men, Stanley was convinced he would end up in the Army. To avoid service in the infantry, he decided he would voluntarily join the Air Force instead. And so I I told my, my parents that I thought I might want to go in the service, probably the Air Force, because I've always enjoyed looking at airplanes, always fascinated by airplanes. And they accepted that. We're not real thrilled about it, but uh, they accepted that. And I remember when I went to the bus station in Grand Rapids, I believe, they dropped me off. And I remember my mother, tears coming out because she was very emotional about losing her son for four years. But I joined the Air Force because I didn't want to really live in a tent for four years. My birthday was in November, and I was in the service on January 14th. So once you once you signed up, you were off. You were sent to Detroit fairly quickly. Get off the bus and go to the, I think they dropped you off right at the base, probably, or wherever it was there, and walked up to the front gate and looked at the guard. I said, I know you. And it was Rex kid that I knew from Coopersville. He was a year or two ahead of me in school. You're up there and wow, I know you. So that kind of made, made it a little bit easier, just knowing that there was somebody there. One of the things that on the schooling down there was the guys that were in the service, now, especially in basic training. A lot of these guys were were um, from the East Coast. They were decent guys and everything, but they said, we're here because we had a choice. 
We either join the service or we go to jail. I thought that's interesting. I'm not just not accustomed to that, but that was pretty typical of the guys back then. They weren't bad guys. They just got in a little bit of trouble. And so they were given a choice. You can join the service or you go to jail for a while. So he says, that's probably an easy choice. After basic, Stan went to San Antonio, Texas for further training at Lackland Air Force Base. School had a main hallway, I remember, and, and off on, on the left side was a classroom every, you know, right next to each other, the full length of it. So you went and walked in the front door and you walked in the first classroom, and that was week one. And this was a hydraulics and pneumatics school to work on airplanes. Right. So one, one week you would learn about the uh, pump, probably the hydraulic pump and everything. And maybe the next week, if you pass the test on that on Friday, then the next week you come in, you went in the second classroom and you progressed right on down. One week was on brakes, another was on ailerons and landing gear and, and everything else. But you spent a week on each one and they really broke it down so that it was understandable. So I was down in the next to the last room, and I did very well in that. I'm mechanically inclined. I understand these things. And so I, I aced probably most of the test. Come down to the next to the last one, took the test, and the instructor said, you failed. I said, what do you mean I failed? I said, I know this stuff. Ask me any question you want on that. And so he started asking me a question, and I give him the answer to everything. He says, I don't understand it, but he says, you failed. So I don't know if somehow they got my test mixed up with somebody else's. That's the only thing I can figure out because I knew this stuff. Stanley was unhappy, but the fastest solution was simply to spend another week retaking the class. I mean, it was pretty easy. You know how to pull a hydraulic cylinder apart and repack it with new O-rings and everything. Well, that's no mystery. That's pretty easy stuff to me. Two tornadoes were recorded around the city of San Antonio in 1958, and Stanley remembers winning a staring contest with one of them. Yeah, I remember that because one guy said, you're from Michigan, you know what to do. What are you gonna do? And I said, I'm gonna stand right here and I'm gonna, I'm gonna face that tornado and I'm gonna wait until it gets closer to see which direction it goes. Tornadoes have a history of turning and, and everything. And sometimes they'll go straight, sometimes they'll go right, sometimes they'll go left. So if I run right, I don't want that chasing me. Turns right, I'm going left. I said, okay, I'll stick with you. Because there was nothing there, there was no ditches basically. The barracks were disappear in a heartbeat. Better off not even being in them. I knew we couldn't get in the, in the concrete building, which would have been safe. So we stood there and watched it, and it come right up the road, right up to the front gate of the base, and then it turned around and went right back through town. Did a lot of destruction back at that time, but you can see the colors change of it. It would go brown, it would turn green. As it picked up grass, it would turn green and brown. Got the dirt. You can see buildings disintegrating in it. We were fairly close, but it come right up to us, turned around and went the other way. And, and about that time, it was also, they, they gave you a questionnaire, where do you want to go for your, you know, your work base? 
and most of the guys put down the Azores. The Azores are a group of islands more than 800 miles west of Portugal in the Atlantic Ocean. While generally wet and cloudy, temperatures below freezing or above 90 degrees Fahrenheit are virtually unknown. U.S. Navy and Army Air Force bases had been established there during World War II. And uh, that would be considered pretty good duty, I, I would expect. And I said, they, they don't even look at this. No way are they going to look at this and pay any attention to it. So a couple of us put down truly Greenland. Still never get that. And come out, went through and finished up. And they sent me to Wurtsmith Air Force Base back at home, hmm. Michigan. Up by Alpena, four hours away, three hours away, which was fine. Kind of wanted to see the world, but that's, I'll go wherever. And then later on, I was there for a couple of years, and then I got orders, and I got orders to, guess where? Truly Greenland. Come around, I guess. Maybe they did look at it. I don't know. Which was fine also. I didn't mind that either. And in Greenland, we had a room that was a tiny room that was probably, the bed is probably six, seven foot. So it was a foot beyond the bed. And the other way it was, a, so that would have been about, say, an eight. And the other way it was probably a, about nine or 10 feet. And that was the size of your room for two people. And you had all your clothes which, uh, you know, you had your big snow pants, you had your muckwucks for your feet, and you had this big, what we call an iron jacket, and it had the wolverine fur around, the, around your face because wolverine fur does not freeze. So as you breathe, your moisture didn't collect on that. Hmm. And so you had these, a lot of these big clothes, you know, plus all your other daily clothes and everything. We didn't have a desk, but we had a tiny closet we didn't have a desk, and so we scrounged up a, a wooden crate somewhere, found a piece of board the way on top of it, and that was our desk. It was very small, but it served its purpose. So the room was pretty tight. I worked nights in Greenland the whole time, and, and I was thinking the other day, I don't know of one single guy that in my shop that worked days. I worked nights by myself, which I'm not sure was quite up to Hoyle, but that's what they decided. And so I really did not ever get to know any of the days, the guys on day shift. And there was probably three or four of them, maybe two, three, four of them. But I worked nights and I would go into the shop at the, at the end of the first shift, which was probably four or five o'clock. They would tell me what hangar to go to, what plane I had to work on, what I had to do. So I would go down there and work on that airplane by myself. Sometimes there was other people around, usually not much. And if there was nothing to do, we kind of gather, gathered in, in an empty hangar and we played ping pong. So I got pretty good at ping pong. I could, because I'm tall and uh, one of the things you have, you have your pants on, you gotta be ready to, to go work at any moment. But so you had your pants on. So what you did is take your coat off, take your pants down to your knees 
and you stood there with your feet apart and that was your playing area, whatever you could reach from that because I couldn't, didn't want to take your boots and all that off. I guess it was too cold to take your boots off anyway. So we would play ping pong a lot there or chess. And I remember one guy playing chess with that we played, I don't know, months before I ever beat him. Months. And, and when we got done with work, then they would release us and we'd just go back to the barracks. But then people that worked nights had, had a big bonus. They got to go to midnight chow. Everybody else had breakfast, dinner, supper. We could go to any of the meals plus midnight chow. And midnight chow was uh, kind of something desired up there. We would get steaks on a regular basis that overflowed the plate. And then you put everything on top of your steak. We would go in and we would get a quart of milk, I think, in a uh, cardboard container. And they, they used powdered milk and then they would reconstitute it and put some extra vitamins and stuff in there for us. And the milk always tasted really good up there. Normally the milk in the military did not taste right because it powdered milk and it just, it just didn't taste quite right. This milk really was good. So everybody took their can of milk and I don't know if it was a quarter or a pint or, or whatever it was, it was pretty good size. Yeah. One of the things up there, you had to have a high fat diet just because of the cold. And so you had to have a high fat diet. So that's what we got. And that was the time when they started coming out with pizzas. They would make, they were experimenting as to what to, how to make pizzas. And so they would take these big pans and, and they would put everything on them. There was no rules for making pizza back then. You know, now you have pepperoni is a pepperoni pizza. If you're a Hawaiian is, you know, is certain. But theirs was a, kind of like a supreme that was an ultra supreme. And they would just have everything and anything on the pizzas. And they would be pretty thick and, and really, really good. We always enjoyed the pizzas up But the Midnight Chow, they, they, it was a kind of a breakfast brunch type thing. You always, you could get eggs and everything. It was a, it was a really good meal. Food up there was delicious. There was never a problem with food up there. Greenland, of course, is pretty far north. And our base was up on the left side of the coast, pretty far north, almost up to the Arctic Circle. And I, it snowed every month of the year up there. All, you know, in the summer, every so often you'd get a little snowstorm come through. It was very dry up there. Your lips cracked. You went through a lot of chapsticks. Your lips were always bleeding. That was just the way of life up there. Your lips were always bleeding. Chapstick just wouldn't control it. And your hair grew very slow up there. Normally you had to shave every day, you know, to, to appear halfway decent. Up there you could shave about every third day and look about the same. <laughs> because your hair did not grow as fast up there in the cold, which was kind of strange. I don't remember ever getting a haircut up there. I'm sure I had to, but I don't remember ever getting a haircut. They had a big gymnasium up there that you could go to. They had a theater, and we used to go every afternoon to the theater to, to watch the movie. 
didn't matter what it was. That's, there was not much to do up there. So we all kind of get gathered at the theater. And, and sometimes it was American movies, new American movies that they would ship up to us. Sometimes it was, uh, it was European movies with subtitles. If we didn't like the movie, we would take a nap, sleep through it. And they had a lot of uh, cartoons. They always had a lot of cartoons. And there was a, a ship in the bay that uh, produced power that was permanently in the bay with a uh, rocks around it. They had extra power units in them, but they produced all the power for the bay. The icebreaker come the 10th of July, I believe, and broke up the ice in the harbor to bring supplies in by boat. 10th of July, and there was about three feet of sea ice out there. Remember go walking down there and watching them break up the ice with this big ship. Pretty cool. A very nice summer day would be 20 degrees. And you can go out with just a very light jacket on and feel very comfortable because your body got used to that cold weather. In the wintertime, it got down to about, uh, oh, 35 below or so. And it just stayed there for the pretty much for a month or they have two months. In the um, wintertime, it was totally dark. And so if you, if you took a nap and you got up, the first thing you did is, is it morning or night? Yes, there was no way to tell, none. And uh, in the summertime, the sun would make a little tiny circle overhead, you know, about the size of a dime up there, it would, where it would rotate around in the hmm. summertime. So it would be light 24 hours, no difference between day or night, really. And a lot of people, I should, maybe I shouldn't say a lot, but some people could not stand the darkness. And so they shipped them back to the States. I remember one of the guys on the flight line that drove one, you know, the tugs and brought you stuff, the air compressor or whatever you needed. I never saw him sober up there the time that I knew him. He would go to bed at night and he would leave two beers sitting on the table. First thing he did, he drank his beers when he woke up. But he, this darkness just, he just couldn't stand the darkness. Made him do strange things. Seemed to be safe enough. They finally shipped him back. I thought this is a pretty cool place because you can't buy your way up there. That's a base. There's nothing around there. There's a very small Danish village which was maybe half a dozen houses or something around there. But other than that, there's nothing around there. So I thought it was a pretty cool place to, to just to be and to see that this, wow, this is great. So it, it was, for me, it was pretty good duty. I remember one time up there, Kind of going back. When you were up there, you went to a, a room where that you would sit and talk or something, and, and they would drink. The sergeants were allowed two forty ounces a month of hard alcohol, hmm. so drinking was you know, and a lot of beer up there. You could buy beer at the base exchange. 
anytime. I didn't didn't drink. I said, I'm, I'm not going to drink while I'm in the service. That's a bad start. Doing that, that gets you in trouble. So I didn't drink while I was up there. and But I went to these get-togethers. And the one time they said, Lubin, you're going you're gonna to have a beer today. And I said, I think so. And they kind of kept on me. And finally, this one guy who I happened to go up on the same plane with, he was from Michigan, from Detroit. He was a sergeant. He was uh, somewhat intoxicated. But because of Michigan to Michigan connection, you know, that's, that's enough to make a connection with somebody. And he jumped between us and he got right in our face. And he says, listen, this guy don't want a drink. Don't you ever offer him a drink again because you'll answer me. And he was not a guy that, you know, you really wanted to mess with a whole lot. He was a nice guy, but don't mess with him. So he got right in her face and said, you know, laid the law down. And after that, every time I come, there was always a pop sitting there for me. Always. So I thought, I thought that was pretty cool that somebody stood up for me that you don't run into things like that too often, but when they do, you remember them. I used to write a letter every week, I think, my parents. My mother always wrote me a letter every, I think every week. She would send cookies now and then wrapped in popcorn, which is a great way to ship stuff. Put your cookies in there and just fill the rest of it up with popcorn. Cookies don't break up or anything. You couldn't call. I don't think you could call from Greenland anyway. You kind of do the same thing every day. But one time we went up to the army base, there was one road leading out, gravel road, and it went up the hill and it went up to the ice cap. And somebody got a hold of a truck and they gathered a few of us and said, you know, let's go up, up to see the army base. So we did that. And along the way, there is a, um, a little hut. And I remember this hut was made out of steel, didn't look very fancy or anything. It had cables wrapped over the top and hanging down were on the cables on each end were big things of stone to hold it down so it didn't get blown away. Okay, look at that. What's the deal here? And he said, you know, winds get 100 miles an hour up. They get really stiff up here. And then we went up, there was a, uh, up to the top of the hill in one spot, and there was a weather station up there. And they said the winds up there were really stiff also, really bad. But then we went up to the uh, army base, and basically it was a hole in the rock, a road, and it just disappeared into the side of the hill. And then there was this big screen up there, which was a radar screen that was about the size of a football field turned on edge. And that was part of their radar system. The radar screen was part of the bemused system of ICBM defenses, keeping the United States safe from a possible Soviet missile strike. The Army run this radar system, but everything was inside the mountain went underground. Because you couldn't get in there or anything, because that was Army and we were an army. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Preserving Valor. We'll continue Stanley's story next week. 
If you're enjoying this retelling of Stanley's story, consider subscribing and sharing Preserving Valor with a friend. Support from people like you is key to the continuation of our mission. And as always, a huge thank you to Stanley and the veterans who served alongside of him.